You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Hello and welcome to the 1851st edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk for the 21st of October 2021. The editor of this edition is Sheila Franklin. The producer is Harvey Johnson and your readers are Harvey Johnson and Sheila Franklin. We should also mention our processing teams who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. We will repeat any telephone numbers that are in this edition at the end of the memory stick. The headlines this week. Majority of retailers planning price rises. Thousands of patients wait more than a year for hospital treatment. Concerns raised after universal credit boost ends. Pioneering treatment saved me from cancer. A majority of retail bosses are planning to put up prices on goods by the end of the year due to delays caused to supply chains, with bosses saying problems are beyond just Felixstowe. The port of Felixstowe has hit the headlines in recent weeks after concerns were raised about congestion there, with container company Myersk diverting goods away from the port. Similar issues are now appearing across the county and beyond. Helen Dickinson, head of the British Retail Consortium, which represents the sector, said a recent poll of chief executives found that three out of five plan price rises after this year due to soaring supply chain costs. She said... The supply chain issues are priority for all businesses right now. They are thinking about Christmas. It's the most important period of the year for a retailer. Takings for a non-food retailer in December are on average of 70% higher than in other months. We're already seeing inflation starting to take place. We surveyed CEOs and three-fifths said they were going to have to increase prices by the end of the year. 10% said they already have. Gary Grant, founder of the store chain The Entertainer, said delays were affecting a number of UK ports beyond Felixstowe. The toy store boss said that 170 shops were literally brimming with stock as a result of spending the last six weeks over-ordering. But he cautioned that 50% of the chain stocks is sold between October and December and even with fully stocked stores at the moment, 
Our concern is that there could well be gaps at Christmas. Asked what he would say to consumers planning for Christmas, Mr Grant said, I would say, don't panic. You will not see empty toy shelves. But if as a parent you know your child wants a special item, I would recommend that you buy it early. The number of patients waiting more than a year for hospital treatment has soared from a dozen before the pandemic to almost 4,000 in Suffolk and North Essex. The figures are revealed as part of this newspaper's investigation into the crisis facing the NHS for patients and staff alike as it approaches winter under huge strain. At West Suffolk Hospital, those waiting more than a year for treatment rocketed from 87 in April 2020 to a record 3,200 in February. It had reduced to 2,200 by August. The last month figures are available. The pandemic has played havoc with NHS waiting lists as treatments were suspended and around 84,000 patients are now waiting at West Suffolk as well as East Suffolk and North Essex. A rise of a quarter since April 2020. A further 18,300 are on the list for diagnostics tests across the hospitals, an increase of 50% since the pandemic took hold. That number has been creeping up each month this year and was at a record in August, suggesting the peak of problems is yet to pass as we approach the NHS's busiest season. We've taken our findings to the Department of Health and Social Care, which said we are committed to ensuring people get the treatment they need. We've dedicated an extra £1 million billion this year nationally and £8 billion over the next three years to transform elective services which could deliver the equivalent of around £9 million more checks, scans and procedures. Suffolk Hospital chiefs said staff were working tirelessly to get through long lists. They said they were prioritising patients by how urgent their treatment was. A West Suffolk NHS Foundation Trust spokesperson said, We are doing everything we can to treat patients as quickly as possible. We are also working with our NHS healthcare partners and the independent sector to increase capacity where possible using the additional funding awarded across Suffolk and North East Essex to tackle waiting lists. Concerns for residents in West Suffolk have been raised after the universal credit boost was stopped, with one councillor saying that the timing could create the perfect storm. The temporary weekly payment was brought in at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic to help struggling families but was revoked by the government last Wednesday. Following the news, Bury St Edmunds town councillor Tom Murray said the timing could create the perfect storm with energy, fuel and other costs rising, heading into winter. For the people I represent, £20 is quite a lot, he said. 20 is a lot when people are probably on the lowest incomes with children coming up. I do know quite a few people are really very concerned. Councillor Murray's comments were echoed by Carol Eagles, 
chief officer of the Citizens Advice West Suffolk branch, who added it was not just unemployed people who would struggle, but those with jobs as well. Citizens Advice Suffolk data reveals that in 2020 to 21, they helped 79 more people than in the previous year. And there was also a 15% increase year on year in support needed when applying for universal credit. Miss Eagle said her advice was for people losing the £20 to budget as much as possible and to come to them for advice. It comes as Frank Stennett, a Fornham St Martin come St Genevieve Parish Councillor, called on Berrytown Council to provide £25,000 to local food banks after it pledged the same amount for a Santa's Grotto in the Ark Shopping Centre at Christmas. A grandfather from Bury St Edmunds said a nurse at the Royal Marsden Hospital couldn't believe it when cancer in his throat completely disappeared thanks to a groundbreaking immunotherapy trial. In 2017, Barry Ambrose, 77, was given the devastating news he had throat cancer, which had spread to his lungs. The only treatment available to him was palliative radiotherapy, meaning it was terminal. Mr Ambrose, who lives on the Morton Hall estate, said that once he was given the diagnosis, he immediately started looking for alternative treatment options. Following a discussion with his GP at the Mount Farm Surgery in Bury St Edmunds, Mr Ambrose was put forward for a trial at the Royal Marsden in Sutton. The retired businessman, who used to own and manage a scientific instruments company in Cambridge, said, The Royal Marsden is one of the leading cancer hospitals in the country. I knew it was the place to be. I was given the news I would be given the immunotherapy drugs on my birthday, and I was delighted. Only a small number of people in the UK were on the trial and just 50% of those were given the immunotherapy treatment. The other half were given chemotherapy. Mr Ambrose, who is recently back from a cruise with his wife Susan, said he was grateful to his doctor and the team at the Royal Marsden for getting him on the trial, which has saved his life. He said within a very short time I got rid of the cancer in my throat one of the research nurses rang me up and said she couldn't believe it. Immunotherapy had very few side effects. In some ways I felt like a bit of a fraud as I was able to get on with my everyday life even though I had cancer. Following his immunotherapy treatment in the trial, Mr Ambrose went on to have chemotherapy and surgery and is now cancer-free. Mr Ambrose added, it is the little things that turn everything around. Even though I was told there was no treatment for me, science is moving on. And now to our general news section for this week. Three former leaders at a Suffolk school could face teaching bans after being found guilty of professional misconduct. Howard Lay, Pat Stalker and Andy Presto who worked at Haverhill Samuel Ward Academy, appeared before a teacher regulation agency hearing in Coventry. They were understood to be accused of off-rolling, 
removing a student from the school role in a bid to protect the Academy's outstanding rating from watchdog Ofsted. The claims related to off-rolling alleged to have happened between 2013 and 2016. A spokesman for Unity Schools Partnership said the Trust was confident no further off-rolling had taken place since 2016. Former Executive Head Mr Lay, ex-Assistant Head Ms Stalker and ex-Principal Mr Presto have since left the Trust running the school. A burst water main caused severe delays to Moultris near Bury St Edmunds as it flooded a roundabout near the A14. The burst mains pipe flooded the A14 Morton Hall interchange roundabout on Tuesday, with water spewing onto the road under the A14 and leaving families in Bury St Edmunds without water. Police were also warning motorists to take care in the area due to the flooding. An Anglian Water spokesman said, Our engineers have isolated the burst and water supplies have been restored to customers. One lane of the roundabout at Beddingfield Way and Simons Road is closed, however traffic is free-flowing. According to Anglian Water's website, the outage was affecting homes on the Morton Hall estate, Fornham St Martin, Fornham All Saints and Little Livermere. Abbots Green Academy, a primary school in Bury St Edmunds, was forced to close as a result of the burst water main. A statement sent out to parents at the school read, Unfortunately, due to unforeseen circumstances, we currently have no running water due to a water fault. It's the second time in a week that residents in Bury St Edmunds have been left without water after a mains pipe burst last Tuesday. On a personal note, let me just say, it's an ill wind that knows no, blows nobody any good. My grandson was absolutely delighted to be sent home for the afternoon on Tuesday. Never mind. I bet he was. <laughs> West Suffolk Hospital's interim chief has said it was absolutely the right thing to do for midwives to flag concerns over care. Midwives penned a letter in the summer to the Care Quality Commission and media outlining the substandard care in the service, describing themselves as exhausted and broken and regularly tearful and angry about the unsafe working conditions. Addressing the county's Health Scrutiny Committee, Interim Chief Executive Craig Black called their actions difficult and brave, thanking staff that felt so committed to the level of service that they felt the need to publicly air concerns. All of the concerns that were raised, I would personally share, he added. There is a shortage of midwives in West Suffolk. There is a shortage of midwives across the NHS. We are not immune from those wider pressures. Work has been underway to tackle the issues. A Suffolk MP has announced she will only hold virtual constituency surgeries until a safety review has been carried out in the wake of Sir David Ames's killing. Joe Churchill, MP for Bury St Edmunds, has been holding virtual surgeries since the start of the pandemic and was in the process of returning to in-person meetings with constituents. 
but now she says she plans to continue with online appointments until a review of politicians' safety has been carried out. She said, Last week's tragic murder of a second MP in five years has once again highlighted the need for kindness and compassion in politics. She said, I will continue to remain accessible to constituents, carrying out visits which I thoroughly enjoy and holding surgeries. I will, however, for the time being, continue to hold my surgeries online, which I have been doing since the beginning of the pandemic. They are often more efficient and accessible way for dealing with individuals' problems. It is right that the parliamentary authorities are carrying out review into members and members' staff security, so we are able to continue doing our jobs in the safest way possible. A Bury St Edmunds art exhibition, which may have contributed to Banks's Great British Spraycation across East Anglia, could have brought in as much as £350,000 to the town. West Suffolk Council has said more than 20,000 people attended the Moments exhibition at Moises Hall Museum, with some coming from as far away as Cardiff, Edinburgh, Cornwall, Cumbria and the Isle of Wight. Original artwork by international artists such as Banksy, the world's most mysterious street artist, Damien Hurst, Tracy Emin, Rachel List, Pure Evil and My Dog Size were on display at the Cornhill venue. International art dealer John Brandler of Essex-based Brandler Galleries, which supplied the majority of the exhibition's artwork, said, I'm delighted the exhibition has attracted people from far and wide and the feedback from exhibition visitors has been delightful. To attract more than 20,000 visitors to the exhibition is a monumental achievement, particularly when you take into account the marketing campaign for the exhibition, which had to begin during lockdown without knowing if and when the exhibition could go ahead. Ticket sales for the exhibition showed 42% of visitors came from outside Suffolk, which the town's tourism brand, Bury St Edmunds and Beyond, has said helped bring a strong economic summer. Sue Warren, Bury and Beyond's brand marketing manager, said, Speaking to our accommodation providers both in and around the town, there is no doubt that the moment's exhibition contributed to the bumper summer season we have had here in Bury St Edmunds. West Suffolk Council hopes to stage another exhibition of international artists in 2023. More than 200 people took part in a protest in Bury St Edmunds over ongoing concerns about dental provision in Suffolk. The Toothless in Suffolk group gathered yesterday morning calling for full access to local NHS dental treatment. Campaigners say there are issues across the county, with many people being forced to travel to either Essex or Cambridgeshire for treatment. Blaston is one of the hardest-hit towns after losing two dental practices in the space of 18 months. There are now no dentists at all in the town. The NHS has promised that more services are coming and that it was committed to ensuring everyone can access high-quality dental care, but that this would take 
until next summer to come to fruition. Campaigners say the delay is simply intolerable. Steve Mousling, one of the organisers of the group, said, We're very pleased there were around 200 or 250 people there. It was an absolutely superb turnout. It's been better than we thought. Mr Marsling said that the group would continue to fight for better dental treatment in Suffolk and beyond. We are trying to get the charity Dent Aid to come to Leyston and Bury, he said. The former Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, announced this week that he had been appointed to, a special, to be a special representative to the UN in an unpaid role helping African countries to recover from COVID-19. However, according to Pass Blue, an independent organisation covering the UN, the body will no longer be standing by this offer. UN spokesman Stefan Jurak said, Mr Hancock's appointment by the UN Economic Commission for Africa is not being taken forward. ECA has advised him of the matter. Nick Dearden, director of campaign group Global Justice Now, reacted to the report saying, If Matt Hancock wants to help African countries recover from the pandemic, he should lobby the Prime Minister to back a patent waiver on COVID-19 vaccines. If he'd done that when he was in government, tens of millions more people could already have been vaccinated across the continent. A hospital consultant has highlighted the tragic plight of two young men seriously ill with COVID-19 who thought they did not need to be vaccinated. Dr Nick Jenkins, an emergency department consultant at West Suffolk Hospital in Bury St Edmunds, said he recently supervised care of the pair and expressed his fear that one of them could die. Talking to, taking to Twitter, he said the other man was self-employed and was going to be off work for weeks or potentially months. He's scared about who'll feed the kids, said Dr Jenkins. He noted that both had declined the vaccine because they didn't think they needed to bother. Dr Jenkins added, I'm struck by both the enormous personal and family tragedy potentially associated with this as well as a massive NHS resource consumed. If these men had had their vaccine, I suppose they would almost certainly not have needed hospital, let alone intensive care. Meanwhile, COVID-19 booster jabs have been given to 1,000 staff members in the last 10 days at West Suffolk Hospital. The rollout of the booster jab has begun across England for those who had their last dose of the coronavirus vaccine six months ago or longer. That programme is working on the same priority groups for the initial rollout of the vaccines. During Wednesday morning's Health Scrutiny Committee meeting in Suffolk, West Suffolk Hospital's Interim Chief Executive Craig Black said 1,000 members of staff had been jabbed in the last 10 days. We're in the midst of our flu vaccination campaign and our Covid booster campaign, he said. We have vaccinated over a 1,000 staff in the last 10 days with our COVID booster and there is a significant amount of activity going on, particularly in GP practices at the moment. The vaccine is the way through this and it is all of our responsibility to protect ourselves, protect our families and those in the wider community. 
I feel a responsibility to get vaccinated and I would encourage everybody to do that. It is part of playing our role in society. Car owners in Haverhill have been encouraged to stay vigilant after a number of thefts from motor vehicles in the town. The warning comes after a spate of thefts from motor vehicles that took place in Bailey Close, Henderson Close, Robinson Close and Bettany Walk on Monday, October the 11th into Tuesday, October the 12th. In Bettany Walk, a Land Rover parked up overnight had items inside moved, with keys and loose change being taken. In Henderson Close, a Ford Focus had changed totalling around £40 taken from the vehicle. In Bailey Close, a black Kia Sportage had items taken which were later recovered, while on Robin Close, a Vauxhall Bora was entered with no force used and a rucksack stolen. A spokesman for Suffolk Police said, Most thefts from cars are opportunist, so officers would remind motorists, where possible, not to leave valuables in the vehicles overnight. If possible, remove them from their vehicle and lock all doors when the vehicle is unattended. A church is making a fundraising push to raise the money needed to start work on an extensive renovation project. All Saints Church in All Saints Road, Newmarket, already has planning permission for the Cornerstone project, which will begin with Phase 1, an updated kitchen, new toilets and an overhaul to the heating system. Later phases of the plan will see the pews replaced with modern seating, a glass entrance constructed at the corner of the church and a first-floor gallery and meeting rooms constructed. Total costs for the refurbishment are expected to be around £900,000, and while the church already has two patrons on board and fundraising underway, it is still a little short of being able to commence the first phase, having raised around half the costs at £150,000 so far. Ian Rees, chairman of the Cornerstone Project, said, We're looking at relaunching our Just Giving page to make it more eye-catching, and we have fundraising still going on, with a plan to host an event in the run-up to Christmas too. Our biggest hope for funding comes from major foundations, and those we've written to so far are happy to help, but we need to raise 50% of the funds ourselves. Greer Harbinson did a wonderful job as chairman before me, appointing architects and drawing up plans and much more, but he said the project needed a younger man leading it, so I decided to take it forward. It's been five years since the idea was first put forward by our former vicar, Max Osborne. We've come a long way since then, and are hopeful we will soon have approval from the diocese. The glass entrance will be a great feature once it's built, and will really bring the inside of the church out. People typically find churches mysterious, but with a glass corner entrance people can see it is an interesting space filled with people socialising. The refurbishments would allow the church to welcome various groups and events into the building and allow it to connect with the entire community, says Mr Rees. We want to cater to the needs of everyone, and make the church an integral part of the community going forward, he said. All Saints Church can be a shining light within Newmarket that brings 
everyone together for social reasons as well as for religious reasons. Worshippers gathered alongside sheep, stalls and choir singers at St Edmundsbury Cathedral to celebrate the annual Suffolk Harvest Festival on Sunday. This marked the first time the service had taken place inside the building in two years, it being held last year at the Trinity Park Conference and Events Centre as a drive-in service due to the pandemic. It's been difficult, but I think farmers are a little more appreciated now than before the Covid outbreak, said Chris Partridge, Kersey Suffolk sheep farmer to the BBC Radio Suffolk's Mark Murphy during the service. Stalls and family activities were available to the general public from noon running throughout the day. Sheep remained in the nave of the cathedral during the service and remained surprisingly quiet. All food donated to the harvest was given to Gatehouse Food Bank, which will distribute the items to people within the community who are fighting food poverty. Young farmers and members of the community presented the harvest loaf donated from Lavenham to the Right Reverend Martin Seal, Bishop of St Edmundsbury and Ipswich. The final prayer for the service was the Lord's Prayer, performed in both spoken language and sign language. Sign language. And finally, as they say, a feel-good story to end our general news section. A Suffolk woman whose beloved cat went missing more than five years ago has discovered he was adopted by a new family 150 miles away in Hampshire. Louise Dixon's ginger tomcat Seamus, who she described as her favourite pet ever, went missing in February 2016, a short while after the family moved to a new home in Rendlesham. After Seamus did not return home one evening, the mum of two set out into the cold in a desperate bid to find her pet. She had long assumed she would never see Seamus again so she was shocked to receive a phone call on Tuesday from a vet in Fleet in Hampshire, nearly 150 miles from where she last saw Seamus. The vet had scanned Seamus's microchip and called Mrs Dixon, who was left in tears after learning her cat was still alive. Instead of asking for him back, Mrs Dixon has generously allowed Seamus to stay with the family who have young children. Mrs Dixon said... We moved house over to Rendlesham and did the usual thing, not letting him go too far. But one day he didn't come back. We went out looking for him in the cold and the wind, but he was nowhere to be seen. Roll on, nearly six years, and I get a call from a vet in Fleet saying he was there. I blubbed like a baby. Mrs Dixon believes Seamus, who has been renamed Sandy by his new owners, may have headed to Hampshire on board a lorry or van from a factory close to her home. He was eventually picked up by a farmer before being bought in Gumtree by the family. <laughs> Mrs Dixon said her choice to allow Seamus to stay in Hampshire was the hardest decision of her life, but she does not want to leave the new family heartbroken. She added, He was my favourite pet ever. My children are teenagers now, and they understand it was the right thing to do. The new family have young children and wouldn't understand what was happening. 
He's happy and healthy, and I simply can't take him away from a family who love him, no matter how much I want him home. What a nice story. It is, isn't it? And now we're moving on to our letters section, and our first letter is from Peter Critchley of Pakenham, who's entitled his letter, No Change of Mind Over £20 Cut to Universal Credit. Sir, I have written several times to my MP, Joe Churchill, expressing my dismay and disbelief at the withdrawal of £20 from the Universal Credit Benefit. Several well-known Tory MPs have begged the Prime Minister to change his mind as it is forecast that millions of children will be forced back into poverty. However, according to Miss Churchill, these people who will be affected by this change, plus myself and those Tory MPs who think otherwise, need worry no more as these claimants will be well looked after for a number of reasons. 1. Support has just been extended to vulnerable families with a £500 million fund to be distributed by councils to those most in need. This will help with essentials over the coming months and will be targeted. This is in addition to a £140 rebate for qualifying low-income households on energy bills. 2. The Healthy Start vouchers for families with young children to help them purchase fruit, vegetables, pulses, milk and formula has been increased. 3. The £2 billion kickstart scheme has seen over 260,000 approved roles created from a range of sectors for 16 to 24 year olds on universal credit. 4. The 2.9 billion restart scheme will provide intensive help to over a million job seekers who've been out of work for more than a year and the national living wage has been increased to £8.91p. This increase has been effective from April 2021 and extended to 23 and 24 year olds for the first time. Furthermore, Universal credit claimants should, according to Minister Therese Coffey, work extra hours to make up the difference and if their wages are not good enough, then do, as Edwina Curry insisted this week, have a word with their employer or go and get a higher paid job. It's that easy. So, it looks as though universal credit claimants will be as well looked after that they won't know they have had £20 per week deducted. In fact, they will probably find themselves so well off they won't even notice their heating bills, fuel and food prices have just soared. Mm. Uh, the next letter is from Councillor Diane Hind, representing Tollgate Ward of, on the West Suffolk Council. Uh, a headed MP failed to address so many issues. I was unimpressed by the article from Joe Churchill in the Berry Free Press of October the 8th, since he failed to mention several important current issues. Violence against women and sexual harassment is on the increase, and yet the Prime Minister sees no need to make public sexual harassment a recognised crime, as requested by Priti Patel. 
Where does our MP stand on this? What plans has she to ensure women are and feel safer? In relation to the police, who in Suffolk are seriously underfunded, receiving from the government far less than comparable forces, what is she doing about that? No mention of the fuel and energy crises? No mention of farmers having to cull pigs? Despite the protests at the Tory party conference, she is a minister at DEFRA, or has she forgotten? Nothing about Covid booster jabs? Few people across the country have had letters, but my local surgery is awaiting guidance on how and who to target. Meanwhile, the elderly and CEV people are becoming increasingly vulnerable once again, at a time when flu will also be circulating. Locally, we have had a recent independent report detailing the serious failing of Suffolk County Council in relation to special educational needs and disability, and she ignores that. Then we have the cut in universal credit, where our MP wrote to a resident to say she appreciates that many people receiving universal credit are in work, which is why she welcomed the government's commitment to supporting the low paid and the increase of the national living wage to £8.91. I would like to see her live on that. But then, like Therese Coffey, I expect she thinks people can just work two extra hours and replace the £20 that way. However, a person on universal credit must give up 67 pence in the pound from universal credit for every extra £1 earned. So someone on £300 a week would have to earn an extra £79.50 to make up the loss of £20. Finally, for months, people across the country and in Suffolk have complained about the lack of NHS dentists, with one local lady pulling out her own teeth in desperation. The answer this week from our MP was a 45-minute online session to listen to complaints. That won't fix the crisis. On all these matters, we need action, not words, and we need to see our MP out and about in Bury St Edmunds. And I have two short letters now praising the work of local health centres and pharmacies. The first letter is from Dr Seco MBE of Elmswell, who says, I took my brother and our wives to the Woolpit Health Centre Fluvax drive-through on Saturday, September the 18th. What a superb operation they ran. The volunteer guides were fantastic, the system was excellent and the faxing staff were great. We were in and out in under 15 minutes. A huge thank you to all and congratulations on a successful operation. And the other letter is from Clifford Davy of Stowmarket who says, Sir... That's another jab under the belt. Not literally, but you know what I mean. After two vaccines, plus the regular flu injection, I have just received my booster jab. This was carried out at Coombs Ford Pharmacy. As with the previous injections at other locations, the staff did a splendid job in a careful, friendly fashion. So many thanks to them in the continuing battle against COVID. 
Even when a woman came in under the impression it was a walk-in session, the young lady in charge handled the situation with calmness and refused to be needled by the woman's attitude. The next letter is from Julian West of Thurston, under the heading Thurston Needs Investment. Sir, over the past four years, approval has been given by Baber Mid-Suffolk District Council for over 1,300 new homes within the village of Thurston, consisting of seven major sites plus numerous smaller-scale developments, with four of the major sites well under construction and a fifth to start imminently, the effect has been to turn most of the northern area of the village into a massive building site, with all the noise, dust, heavy vehicle traffic and disruption associated with large construction projects. Unfortunately, despite the many hundreds of thousands of pounds that the developers have paid the Counselling Community Infrastructure Levy so far, not one penny has been spent on the very necessary infrastructure improvements that are required within the village now as a result of these ongoing developments. All of these schemes were passed on the basis that significant upgrading would occur to the road networks and major junctions within the village. Traffic management and pedestrian and cycling access features would be installed. An alternative to the barrow crossing of the railway tracks at the station would be provided and residents' access to services such as doctor's surgery would be improved. To date, nothing at all has happened. Twelve months ago, Network Rail were granted £100,000 of CIL money to carry out yet another feasibility study and traffic assessment to provide an alternative solution to the Barrow Crossing at the station, which they freely admit is over capacity and needs to be replaced. Since then, a youngster narrowly escaped with their life after being knocked off their bike by a train whilst crossing the railway lines. To date, they've done nothing. The crossroads, known as Fishwick Corner, has witnessed several accidents over the last few months. It is only a matter of time before someone is seriously injured or killed at this junction with the increase in traffic resulting from the growth of the village. There are several other major junctions within the village that need solutions to address the increase in traffic. Again, to date, nothing has been spent on junction improvements or pedestrian access and crossing solutions by the council or Suffolk Highways. I'm seriously concerned that whilst the building of new homes is rapidly progressing and new residents are moving into the village, the vital infrastructure improvements are not being carried out in accordance with the speed of the developments. Are we supposed to wait until all the developments have been completed before anything whatsoever is spent by Baber Mid-Suffolk District and Suffolk County Council to address the issues? The situation is totally unacceptable. The councils need to get their acts together and start to spend some of the vast CIL reserves that they are sitting on. Colin Rossini of Dover Court writes to express his respect for Sir David Amos. Sir, when living in Lee-on-Sea in 2000 to 2004, I can confirm that Sir David Amos was always dignified, decent and humorous. 
as the testimonies afforded him highlight. One doesn't have to be a Conservative to say that. I have never said Brexiteers are bad people, believing it is proving to be a bad decision from a rogue state. I really believe it is time we ceased calling terrorists radicalised. They are psychotic murderers, unworthy of their religion, shielding their dark nature from the world. Rest in peace, sir. Ultimate respect to you. Isn't it? Uh, here we've got another letter from Tony Pringle. He's the chairman of Newmarket Royal British Legion. He writes, It saddens me to see politics encroaching on Remembrance Day. As chairman of the Newmarket branch of the Royal British Legion, may I be permitted to outline a few facts. The responsibility for all these commemorations lies with the local authority. It always has. I suspect that when the late Bill Sadler was a councillor and chairman of the Legion here in Newmarket, the boundaries of this responsibility became muddled. The Royal British Legion, however, in the past two years, has sent very clear instructions to all branches that we must not assume ownership of these ceremonies. We do, of course, offer advice and any assistance required. I first spoke to the Mayor when our town council first realised its new role. I own up. It was me that raised the subject of the buffet at the Avenue Bowls Club, after the service at Tattersall's, and said it was my personal opinion that it was a tradition long overdue scrapping. The latest discussion, in my opinion, is a case of using public money for a free buffet for folk who can well afford to pay, when the whole purpose, after remembering the fallen, is to raise funds for the welfare of veterans and their families. Newmarket Town Council democratically made the decision to abandon this aspect of Remembrance Day, but has enthusiastically embraced the true aspect of the day. In the true spirit of remembrance, can we all please stop bringing politics into it? Even if for only two minutes a year we pay our respects to the fallen and renew our pledge to assist those who fought for us and need our help for themselves and their families. We will, to this end, be seeking to lighten your wallets and purses at Waitrose between November the 6th and the 13th. My personal slogan, however, is Remembrance is not just two minutes each November. For some, it is every waking hour. The next letter is from Roger Spiller of Ixworth who writes to express his view that the government is not doing enough to secure our food. Among the shortages the country is facing is food, not just due to Brexit and Covid, but to increasing global demand, and because we import 60% of our food, much of it from the EU. The supply of food in the UK is not protected from unforeseen or even foreseen events. Whether it be a lack of HGV drivers, foreseeable, or new border checks into food and agricultural products at UK ports, foreseeable, there is no flexibility in our food supply. We have no defence against even foreseeable problems with our food supply. 
What happens when global heating reduces the worldwide supply of food? We shall no longer be able to rely on other countries to supply us with food which their own populations need, as we have seen with the supply of COVID vaccines. We need more homegrown food. This is all because government has no policy to to secure food supplies. The recent food strategy report only dealt with what we should eat, not where it comes from or how it gets here. The answer has been, leave it to the supermarkets, whose ultimate responsibility, by law, is not the customer, but their shareholders. The interests of the nation and the long-term interests of their suppliers, farmers and producers, at home or abroad, are not their top priority. Having left it to the supermarkets, we now find that their supply chain is collapsing, so government has appointed the ex-chief executive of Tesco to put it right. Neither farmers nor the general public can rely on the present arrangements for food security. Many farmers in the UK and abroad are further threatened with sea level and temperature rise, potentially removing land from production and or creating crop failures. In Ixworth and Stanton, we have two large farmers who are focused on low import and low interference to the soil structure to reduce their carbon footprint and pollution of air and waterways. This approach ensures the soil can produce crops indefinitely, reducing damage to the whole spectrum of wildlife, animals, birds, insects, fungi and helpful bacteria. It also reduces health-threatening pollution from animal waste, especially ammonia and phosphates getting into the air or water sources, and using much less energy, especially diesel. However, This is a medium-term approach which can take a decade or more to fully implement, but we can already see benefits from it. Government needs to take a lead and take our food supply as seriously as they claim to take other areas of security. In two weeks' time they will preside over the climate conference in Glasgow, probably the most important meeting ever to take place. As I write, they've yet to publish their proposals for the UK, let alone the world. The Treasury seems determined not to invest in a future free of environmental threats. They promise for the future, but we need that investment now. In his letter, John Bailey of Stanton writes, We can't blame Russia for rises. Sir, In the midst of current and further predicted gas price rises, it may interest your readers to know that only 5% of our gas supply is actually from Russia. Therefore, somewhat unfair and untruthful for Boris Johnson and his government to blame Russia for these increases. Almost 50% of our gas comes from our own resource in the North and Irish Sea. Anyone with a close to 50% market share in any commodity knows that they have the control to set the price of such. But then, perhaps we have to ask who actually owns our gas. 
Perhaps the people who do are getting extremely rich by doing so. I wonder which political party they actually support and possibly contribute to. Just a thought. The next letter has name and address supplied, although not printed. Well done to the family who recently moved into an address on the Howard in Bury St Edmunds and shortly after having done so have taken the time and trouble to transform an otherwise uninteresting and neglected area of grass to the front of their new home into an eye-catching display which, with strategically placed trellis ready to host whatever they have in mind, will, in the fullness of time, turn the frontal aspect of their house into something special. Perhaps this transformation will be all that was necessary to encourage others to follow suit and make the Howard even more special than it already is. And my last letter, quite a short one, from Colin Rossini of Dovercourt, says, Sir, reading that British Airways have decided to drop ladies and gentlemen from their flight lexicon begs a question, on what day did the nation become officially insane? And now for an opinion piece by David Ellesmere, which he's written in light of the dilemma for MPs in wake of, Saint Dave, of Sir David Amos's stabbing. We will all have been shocked to hear about the fatal stabbing of Sir David Amos MP on Friday. My thoughts go to his family, friends and colleagues. It is obvious that he was held in a great deal of affection by those who knew him, regardless of political affiliation. Some of the most touching tributes I have seen were from Labour MPs to whom he had shown great kindness or consideration. To many of my generation, David Amos was the face of the Conservative general election win in 1992. His victory in Basildon was the first indication that John Major was going to hang on as Prime Minister. He was never a government minister. Instead, devoting himself to his constituency. It was clear from the TV news on Friday that his loss will be felt just as keenly by his residents. The horrific circumstances of his death echo the murder of Joe Cox five years ago and must make us think about the safety of MPs and indeed all elected politicians. It is a real dilemma, as most MPs and councillors pride themselves on being accessible to their public. This is essential in a democracy. If you are going to represent the views of your constituents, then they need to be able to tell you what they are thinking. This can be through formal methods of letter, phone, email or advice surgery. Just as valuable can be the chance encounter in the street. Pre-Covid, I always used to factor in some extra time if I was walking through the town centre because I could pretty much guarantee that I'd be stopped by someone who wanted a chat. 
politicians are not so accessible in all countries. When Keir Starmer visited Ipswich a few months ago, we met an Italian who had his picture taken with the Labour leader. He was astonished that he could just walk up to a national politician in the street. This would simply not be possible in Italy. Armed police would stop that. Our democracy would be greatly diminished if we were to lose the ability of the public to speak directly to their elected representatives. We must, all, we must do all we can to retain this while ensuring that our politicians are kept safe from harm. And I have a feature article to bring to you which, uh, in which we discover that not only is the story of the George Medal truly amazing, circumstances behind it are extremely rare. A rare bravery medal earned by one of our region's greatest heroes of the country's worst post-war flood disaster is set to be sold to the highest bidder six years after its shock appearance in an auction sale room sparked a police investigation. Yarmouth fireman Fred Sad was presented with the George Medal, the nation's second-highest civilian gallantry award, for saving 27 men, women and children trapped in their homes when a North Sea surge devastated the East Coast in January 1953 leaving more than 300 people dead in its wake. But more than six decades later, his remarkable story was headline news again in very different circumstances, when the award, which had been loaned for display at the town's fire station, turned up in a Suffolk auctioneer's sale catalogue. Seized by police, it was subsequently returned to the hero's son and daughter-in-law, Brian and Brenda Sad though a year-long inquiry closed with no one facing prosecution. Now, the couple, who are both in their 80s, have made the difficult decision to sell the medal, along with a family treasure trove of documents and photographs that includes a ten-shilling note sent in a letter of thanks by an anonymous Londoner in the immediate aftermath of the floods. Speaking at his great Ormsby home, ahead of next month's Spink auction, Mr. Sad explained, We're both getting on a bit, and we haven't got any children to leave them all to, so we felt the time had come to let them go to someone who would look after them and take as much pride in them as we have. Conservatively valued at four to five thousand pounds, the prized possessions, which include a wartime defence medal and fire brigade long service and good conduct medal, are expected to fetch a much higher price when they go under the hammer on November the 24th. Predicting a feeding frenzy from collectors in Britain and abroad, Spink's head of medals, Marcus Budgeon, said, Not only is the story of the George Medal truly amazing, the circumstances behind it are extremely rare. We're lucky that in this country we don't have many natural disasters of this kind, and that makes Fred's award highly unusual and highly emotive. He said that he felt privileged to be able to memorialise the story on behalf of Fred's family. He was such a brave man, and modest to a fault, he added. He worked at saving lives until he quite literally dropped from exhaustion. 
and on a night when the level of courage required to earn a George Medal was incredibly high, his actions were amazing. It's one of the most outstanding awards of its kind that we've ever handled. The upcoming auction represents the latest twist in an extraordinary saga of courage, cloaked in a still unresolved modern-day whodunit mystery. The strange odyssey of Fred Sad's George Medal began two years after his death in 1987, at the age of 77, when his hard-earned honour was loaned to Yarmouth Fire Brigade. As well as being a memorial to my father, said Brian, we thought it was something the whole town could take pride in, and were pleased to think it would be publicly displayed with his other medals for the benefit of everyone in Yarmouth. For security reasons, the distinctions were later replaced by replicas, and the originals put in a safe before being moved to another fire station. We used to sit there thinking they were in safe hands with the fire brigade, said Brenda, until one day in 2015 I went to the local paper shop and saw the headline, Flood Heroes Medals to be Sold. It was such a shock. I remember running home in tears and saying to Brian, they can't do that. Shock turned to anger when they discovered that the original medals had vanished years earlier and been sold perhaps as many as three times before ending up in an Ipswich auction room. According to the subsequent police investigation, they had apparently been stolen from the fire brigade before being traded into the hands of private collectors. It was unbelievable, said Brenda. If medals could talk, what a story they'd have to tell. We thought they were safe when, in fact... They were passing from person to person, and if it hadn't been for that newspaper story, we'd never have known. Now, with the medals and their associated papers about to be sold legitimately for the first time, the couple have one final wish. Whoever ends up buying them, said Brenda, we just hope they will be treated with the respect they deserve in honour of a very brave man. In a personal note accompanying the sale entry, she added, his actions in the floods of 1953 were so typical of him. The word hero is unfortunately very overused now, but he was one, a real one, and I hope he will be remembered as such. We are coming to the end of this edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk. If you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, Please use the phone number on the pink sheet which you've been given or put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We would like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Berry Free Press, East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and Newmarket Journal from whose pages most of our items have been taken. News Talk will be back again next week so until then, from Harvey and Sheila, it's goodbye. Goodbye. been listening to a podcast brought to you by the St Edmundsbury News Talk Association.
You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedensburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St Edmunds studio.